0: You'll join me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, this morning we will be looking at verses 3 through 5, and you can find our text in the Blue ESV Bible on page 942, page 942. <clears throat> title of our sermon this morning is Suffering's Fruit, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are suffering, endurance, and hope. Now, there is a certain irony to the suffering of a Christian, suffering in Christian life. The Lord has a way of keeping us off balance. He's often unpredictable in His plans for our lives. God is, is always at work, and His work is designed to take all boasting off of mankind and to put all boasting back on Himself. <laughs> so we can't be surprised that suffering is part of God's design. Now it certainly baffles us, it tests us to the limit sometimes. But all throughout Scripture, we're reminded of what James tells us. Remember James chapter 1, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" Now there are many examples, not only in the Bible, but all throughout church history of God's work in the lives of His people in the midst of suffering. This is the stuff that leaves people questioning their faith and questioning the faith of others. This is the stuff that leaves people questioning Christianity altogether. This is the stuff that leaves people questioning whether or not there is even a God out there and if there is, does He even care? Then, of course, the added layer of difficulty when we affirm that not only does suffering exist in the world. But that it is in the grips of the Almighty God. And we affirm that it is all by His design whenever and wherever that suffering exists. I'm reminded of the life and death of the missionary David Brainerd. Brainerd's father died when he was nine years old, and his mother when he was 14. It seemed that there was an unusual strain of weakness and depression that ran throughout his family. Not only did his parents die early, but also David's brother Nehemiah died when he was 32, his brother Israel at 23, his sister Jerusha died at 34, and he died. David Brainerd died when he was 29. David Brainerd suffered from some of the darkest days one might imagine on and off during his short life. When he turned 19 years old, he inherited a farm, and he he moved to the farm for a year to try his hand at farming, but his heart was not in it. He longed for what he wrote was a liberal education in the liberal arts, and if he hadn't been expelled from Yale University, he might have pursued a teaching or a pastoral ministry instead of becoming a missionary to the Native Americans. It was at the age of 20. 20. Brainerd was reading through the Bible twice, and he began to see more clearly that the religion that he had inherited in his life was legalistic. It was was simply based on his own efforts. He rebelled against the idea of original sin and against the strictness of God's law and against the sovereignty of God. He fought with the fact that there was nothing that he could do in his own strength to commend himself to God. And in his journals, he wrote extensively about his life prior to being awakened to the beauty of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And by the age of 21, he was in a lonely place and he was trying to pray. And he wrote, as I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open the view and apprehension of my soul. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness, and the greatness, and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in Him, at least to the degree that I had not thought as I remember at first about my own salvation, or scarce that there was such a creature as I. Eventually, David Brainerd did go on to Yale. He was expelled after a couple of years because he was commenting in the hearing of others that a faculty member was unconverted and had no more grace within him than the chair he was sitting on. Now this expulsion wounded Brainerd very deeply. He tried again and again the next several years to make things right. Numerous other people came to his aid, but all to no avail. God had another plan for David Brainerd. Instead of a quiet six years in the pastorate or a lecture hall followed by his death and little historical impact for the kingdom of Christ, God meant to drive him into the wilderness that he might suffer for the sake of Christ and have an incalculable influence on the history of missions. In the summer of 1742, a group of ministers licensed Brainerd to preach, and he was appointed as a missionary to the Native Americans, to the Indians. He spent the winter serving a church on Long Island so he could enter into the wilderness in the spring, and his first assignment was near Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where Jonathan Edwards would eventually work as a missionary to the Indians as well. He arrived in April of 1743. He preached for a year using an interpreter, trying to learn the language, and eventually starting a school for the Indian children and translating a few of the psalms. He was then reassigned to go to the Indians along the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. Within a year, there were 130 Indians in this growing congregation, and he stayed with them until he was too sick to minister to them. On March 20th, 1747, he made one last visit to his Indian friends and then he rode to the house of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts. He made one trip to Boston during the summer and he returned and died of tuberculosis in Edwards's house on October 9, 1747. It was a short life. 29 years, 5 months, and 19 days. And only 8 of those years as a believer only four of those years as a missionary. Jonathan Edwards published Brainerd's diaries, and of them John Wesley wrote, let every preacher read carefully over the life of David Brainerd. Hundreds of missionaries were inspired, were motivated by the work of Brainerd's life and ministry. Hundreds of Native Americans were converted under his ministry. And it all serves as a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, Sick, discouraged, beat down, lonely, struggling saints who cry to Him day and night to accomplish great things for His glory. There is great fruit in affliction. Physically, Brainerd was constantly coughing up blood because of tuberculosis. Added to his physical distresses, he had miserable depression that he often called a kind of death to his soul. There are at least 22 places in his diary where he longed to die to be freed from his misery of depression. There are even 36 pages of his diary that Edwards didn't include in his publication. They're only available at the Yale Library because he expressed in those pages a disappearance of a capacity to fear or to love anyone at all. Only in retrospect did he see himself as a suitable object for the compassion of Jesus Christ as he wrote it. But in the hour of darkness, there was no sense of hope, there was no sense of love, there was no sense of fear. Now, thankfully, he was spared the suicidal drive in his life. His wishes for death were all restrained within the bounds of biblical truth. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He wished for death many times, but only that God would take him. Now, Brainerd's misery was compounded as he contemplated how it affected his work and his ministry and his personal devotions. He worked alone in the wilderness. He had very little companionship. He longed for friends. He longed for a wife, but knew none. On top of all of his physical suffering, on top of all of his psychological distress, Brainerd ate very poorly. He was almost without any earthly comforts. He was frequently lost in the woods. He was exposed to cold and to hunger, his horse was stolen at one point, he was poisoned at one point, he broke his leg in the wilderness at one point, he endured the smoke of the campfires while suffering from tuberculosis, and rarely ever did he sleep. So if love is known by sacrifice, then Brainerd loved the Indians immensely. But if it is also known by a heartfelt compassion, Brainerd struggled to love the Indians. Sometimes he was melted with love, but other times he seemed empty of any affection or compassion for their souls whatsoever. He expressed guilt that he should preach to immortal uh, immortal souls with, with no more ardency and so little desire for their salvation. His compassion could simply go flat. In May of 1747, at Jonathan Edwards's house, the doctors told Brainerd that he was uncurable and he did not have long to live. And in the last couple of months of his life, the suffering was incredible. Jonathan Edwards wrote that it was a week before Brainerd died, and he said, he told me it was impossible for any to conceive of the distress he felt in his breast. He manifested much concern lest he should dishonor God by impatience under his extreme agony, which was such that he said the thought of enduring it one minute longer was almost insupportable." Now one of the main reasons Brainerd's life has such a powerful effect on people is that in spite of all of his struggle, in spite of his suffering, he never gave up his faith in Christ. He was consumed with a passion to finish his race and to honor his master and to spread the kingdom and to advance in his personal holiness. It was this unswerving allegiance to the cause of Jesus Christ that makes the bleakness of his life attractive even still today. There's something that captures the soul when we see a person of single-minded devotion persevering against all odds. So you see, it wasn't, it wasn't so much Brainerd's accomplishments as a missionary, significant as they were, that have perpetuated his influence in the world. I venture to say that it wasn't even so much the publication of his diary, but rather what it reveals in that he was suffering, and that suffering molded him into the kind of man that he was. Like so many others I could also highlight, Brainerd's life teaches us something about what God is doing in the lives of His children in the midst of suffering, in the midst of our suffering. And as we pick up where we left off last week in Romans 5 this morning, we are seeing how the Apostle Paul describes God's design in our suffering. That it's not accidental, that it is very measured, that it is not pointless. The Lord has a purpose and a plan, and the Apostle Paul helps us to see how it is that we might experience the fruit of suffering in a way that we too can continue to walk with faithfulness no matter our circumstances, just like our brother David Brainerd. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 for context, but our focus this morning is on verses 3. Through five. Again, we read Romans 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, many Christians reject this idea that God designs our suffering. But at the end of his suffering, this was the final lesson that Job learned. Remember Job 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan may play his wicked role in the drama that that takes Job's children and strikes him with boils from from head to toe, but Job will not give Satan center stage in the story. That belonged to God alone, even if we can't understand all of it. And, And remember, when Job's ten children were crushed to death, the text says Job fell upon the ground and worshiped, and he said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.'" And to this amazing confession that God had taken his children, the author of the book responds with a confirmation, knowing that we would question such language and said, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong." Similarly, even when the text says explicitly that Satan afflicted Job with loathsome sores, Job's response was, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And again, the author of Job endorses his theology and his words and says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And this is the message of the Bible whether we are talking about suffering that comes from disease or calamity or persecution or our very own sin, God works all things after the counsel of His will. God has a good and wise purpose in all that happens. From morning until night over all the goings and comings of our lives, we should say, if the Lord lives, we shall do this or that. Why? Because God says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. The mind of man's plan are his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not One of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And of course, that that bold claim over every evil perpetrated against God's people, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring about this present result. What Joseph said in Genesis 50, that God turned this evil for good after it happened, but it wasn't just after it happened. It was that God meant it for good. God planned it that it would result in an ultimate good. And that is the story of the Bible in our suffering. Now, you'll recall from last week that all that Paul is writing is now based on that wonderful, rich statement that we read in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has shown us the grounds on which we can be certain of our salvation as a result of our being justified by faith alone. He showed us first that we've been justified, and so we're no longer at enmity with God, we are no longer enemies of God, but now we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He showed us that we have access to grace, and we stand upon the grace of God, and we can have hope, We can have assurance, we can have certainty that all that God promises for His children is true. And it's as good as accomplished already because His promises will not fail. And thirdly, Paul showed us a fruit of our justification is that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But having written that, Paul continues and he writes at the beginning of verse 3, Notice those words. He says, not only that. In other words, that's not all. This is infomercial. There's more. <laughs> There's something more to contemplate when we consider the fruit of our justification, and that is the fruit of our suffering. What further proof does Paul show us of the fact that we are saved, that we are children of God, that we are destined for the glory that awaits us? The answer is the way in which our faith enables us to face the trials, the troubles, the problems, and the tribulations of this life, the suffering that comes in this life. This is the theme of verses 3, 4, and 5. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, there is no more important and no more subtle test of our profession of the Christian faith than the way we react to the trials and the troubles and the tribulations of life in this world. There is no test which is more delicate, more sensitive than this particular test. So, how should we think of our suffering?" The first thing Paul shows us this morning in verse 3 is that God has given us every reason to rejoice even in our suffering. This really seems odd, doesn't it? He writes, not only this, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. If this weren't in the Bible, And if this weren't written by the Apostle Paul who suffered more than most in life, I would easily write it off as the musings of a crazy man. But this is really where our faith is tried. This is really what we're after as Christians, isn't it? You know, as as your pastor, you could probably list off several things I'm responsible for, several things that you think are part of my job, several things you think are part of my job but aren't. There are all kinds of things, some accurate, some not, whatever that is. But when I stand here, When I prepare to stand here, what I think about, the one big thing that I think about every day that God has called me to for your life is that I have the responsibility of preparing you to suffer and to die. Yes, preaching, teaching, administration, all of that, but really in the end we face suffering in this life and then we die. And so all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the study, all of the thinking and discussing and contemplating, all of it is to get us there, to get us to the finish line and to do it well so we can rejoice in the glory of God. But in His presence... That we would be a people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, made able to stand before the Father in victory because of Christ and because our hearts have been set upon Christ and we have not wavered. So as crazy as it seems at first, when we read Paul's words here that we can rejoice even in our suffering, we can know that the Lord does what He does to make us more fit for the journey ahead. There is fruit in our suffering. There is fruit in our affliction, and we can remember along the way what Christ has said to each and every one of us as His children, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Brothers and sisters, that means that all of our distresses, all of our weaknesses, all of our sickness all of our difficulty, it all is meant to bring us to rely less and less upon ourselves, to stand more faithfully upon the grace of God, to not grumble, to not complain about our sufferings and trials, but to rejoice in God who has given us the grace to stand and to be all the more conformed into the image of Christ. We must always remember what Paul told the churches in Acts 14. He said, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Brethren, we are no exception. We live in a rare place in time that we avoid much of the suffering that the history of mankind has endured, and so we have it in our minds that maybe this isn't for us, but through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And the surprising reality of what Paul writes is that the Christian's hope is not in spite of current suffering, but rather it is rejoicing in current suffering because it produces specific results. But how do we rejoice in suffering? The answer is from what we saw in verse 2, namely that we are standing in grace. It is sufficient. This is God's all-powerful work to help us, to keep us, to carry us, even though we don't deserve it. So, you see, the first place we start is knowing that we don't actually have the ability within us in and of ourselves to rejoice in our suffering, but that too is supplied by the ever-abundant grace of God. This isn't some sort of work we can do. It's not some sort of feeling that we can conjure up or some sort of effort that we can put forward to rejoice in our suffering. We cannot face affliction and just tell ourselves, okay, it's time to rejoice now. No, it's not a false way of speaking. You know, I'm really sick. I'm terribly depressed. I'm in great distress. But praise God, I'm rejoicing that I get to suffer. Nobody buys that, because it's not how we think. It's not how we speak as Christians when we face real suffering. This isn't a fake thing. When we face real suffering, we say things like, you know, it's really bad right now, and I'm hurting, and I don't like it. I wish it wasn't here. I wish there was another way for me to walk through this life, but for whatever reason, this is where God has me right now. And so I hope I can continue to rely on His grace every moment to get me through because there's no other way I can make it. That's real life, isn't it? That's our best scenario. Instead of descending into this self-absorbed, critical way of thinking and grumbling and complaining that we so often do, we need the grace of God. But you see, grace isn't a potion we drink or a thing that just happens to us. It's what God provides through all of the means that he has provided. And most importantly, it is through the truth of his word. For several weeks now, we've, we've kept coming back to that idea. We need to set our minds on the promises of God. We need the truth of God's Word so that we can walk faithfully, that we can suffer well, that we can rejoice instead of grumbling and complaining. And the truth that we have this morning is that there is a fruit that we can look forward to in our suffering that we may not recognize in the midst of all of it. If you've ever planted a fruit tree, it takes a long time. And it's easy to, to get frustrated and to be annoyed by it. And year after year, it's just not quite large enough yet. But it comes. It comes in time. There is fruit. And there are true fruits that the Lord provides when He walks with us through our suffering. And indeed, He does. And He shows us at least three of those fruits. The first one we see also there in verse 3, and that is that your suffering produces endurance. I'm sure all of us are familiar with the popular phrase, what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Well, there's some truth to that. Sometimes the Lord's purpose in our suffering really is to bring us to death and so we can rejoice that we are brought before the Lord to live the rest of eternity in His presence, the very thing David Brainerd prayed for. But we also recognize that we will face some difficult days. Listen, life in this world is really, really difficult. And if something happens that is hard and painful and frustrating and disappointing, and by grace, your your faith looks to Christ and His power and His sufficiency and His fellowship and His wisdom and His love, then your faith endures and perseveres. It becomes stronger. How does that work? Think of, think of working out a muscle. When you lift a weight, you're breaking down all these small muscle fibers of your muscle. The muscle tissue is actually tearing. It's breaking down. But your body reacts and and it heals all of those little tears that you are making. And to prevent further injury to the muscle, the repair job makes the recovering muscle even bigger and even more resilient and stronger. And so increasing the resistance or the weight that you're using to work out will build your muscle tissue layer by layer, making you strong and stronger. So one day you can look like Austin Reed. (laughs) But in a similar way, our suffering works to break down all of the different parts of us. Most importantly, it's breaking down our self-will and our self-righteousness. And when we heal, Or even when we simply just focus our eyes and our minds and our hearts on the right place, on Christ, we grow stronger and it takes more to break us next time. So what Paul is telling us is that that all of our suffering, all of our trials, all of our difficulties, all of the tribulation in this life is meant by God to make us unbreakable, to build us up, in our spiritual muscles so that we're prepared for the next trial, so that we are prepared for the next wave of suffering that comes our way. Think of David Brainerd When his body was broken, when he's coughing up blood, when he's overcome with bouts of deep depression, there was something that kept him going and working and serving, and each tribulation gave him a new opportunity to be strengthened by the Lord, by his grace. He persevered and he fought the good fight. So often, when we face suffering, our immediate response is to be fearful. But we need not fear suffering. God has promised, a bruised reed He will not break, a faintly burning wick He will not quench. What an amazing reminder of God's tender love for His people. What a wonderful reminder that by God's grace we can run the race And as you're running, sometimes you will trip, sometimes you will fall, sometimes you might be flat on your back and not know how you're going to get up, but the Lord isn't going to break us even though it feels like we're being split in two. He's not going to snuff us out too soon. He will keep our flame burning as long as He wants it to so that our lives can give glory to Him. And we will endure by God's grace, and He gives us exactly what we need when we need it. But you see, if you want to endure, brethren, God does call us to use the means that He's provided that we might know His grace. He has given us His Word that we might read and contemplate and study and think about and talk about and hear about. He's given us prayer that we might pour our hearts out to Him, that He might minister to us by the Spirit of God. He's given us the fellowship of the church. He's given us the ordinances that as we partake of them, we are strengthened and nourished in the faith. He has given us all of the means of grace that we might endure in the midst of our suffering. And you know, I don't know if it's your experience, I know it's mine, in the midst of suffering, one of the hardest things to do is exactly what I need to do, and that is to turn to those means that God has provided that I might walk more faithfully with Him. But he has given them to us that we might know the truth of verse 2, that we would stand upon the grace that he has provided that we might endure through our suffering. But he shows us also in verse 4 that your suffering produces character. The more literal rendering of this is tested character. In other words, it means putting something to the test for the purpose of approving it. Proven character, or all of the flaws of your character removed. So the idea would be that a a piece of steel is forged in the fire. Say that it's for a sword or something along those lines. And it is put into the fire to prove its character, it is tested through the flames to strengthen it. And so in the same way, we are tested in the flames of affliction and our character is revealed. What kind of person are you? Well, when you suffer, you will find out. It is one of the things that goes on in this life that when everything is going well, we walk proud. When everything is going fine, we don't have any problems. And our character appears to be wonderful. But what happens when the bottom falls out? What kind of man, what kind of woman will you prove to be? Once again, we're building on the foundation of God's grace. The kind of person I am, when I'm relying on myself, when I'm looking to my own strength, when I'm depending on my own self-worth, when suffering comes, I'm down and out. I can't handle it. I've become so reliant on me. I will be miserable to be around. I will always have a sour attitude about life and the world around me and everyone and everything else. Why? Because in the moment, I think the world is all about me. It's here to serve me. And so if it isn't serving me the way I want it to serve me, I get angry, I get bitter, I get irritable, I get grumpy. I may even get mad at God. I may even start to question God and His promises and His purposes. It is only when I can stand upon the grace of God that I have the right outlook, that I can have a right focus, orienting God's promises in my mind and in my heart in such a way that no matter what comes, I am able to stand faithful with the Lord. Now, look, that doesn't mean we're going to do this thing perfectly. And to think you are is just a silly, self-righteous notion. But you see, your character isn't proven by how few tears you shed, or how little your heart aches, or how few panic attacks you have, or how few times you admit that you're having a bad day, or a bad week, or a bad month. It is realizing that an easy life does nothing to produce character. Character is forged in the crucible of pain. Character is built when we have no alternative but to persevere in tribulation. Remember the quote from John Bunyan I shared last week? It is said that in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. The suffering of this life will build and bear the fruit of character. Those who come out of all of their suffering on the other side are those in whose soul God has built character. But notice, Paul is not yet done. In the second part of verse 4, he shows us that your character forged by suffering brings hope. How is that possible? How does that work? It seems that Paul is getting more outrageous with his claims. But isn't the answer that when your faith has been tried in suffering and you've been able to endure that suffering, that your faith is proven genuine, your faith is proven authentic, you know that you are real, that you're not a fake Christian, and it gives you hope that you really are a child of God and you really will inherit His glory. You know, one of my great fears as a Christian has always been that one day I would be proven to be a hypocrite. It's true. I've always had this concern that one day I would find out that I was just a hypocrite and maybe my faith wasn't real or that I was just going through the motions. I'm just being honest. I want you to know that these things are normal for all of us and we struggle as Christians. But what Paul is showing us here is that one of the purposes of our suffering is to give us victory over those kinds of fears and to bring us to a place where we are all filled with hope, we are filled with confidence as God's children, that we don't have to question that. He brings us to a place where we can say, there's no way I could have gone through all of that without abiding in Christ. And I know that I am His and He is mine. It takes away that fear, and it gives us hope. So God brings us through difficulties to show us in part that we are real, authentic, genuine, proven Christians. And in that way, He gives us hope that we really will inherit the kingdom of God and delight everlastingly in His glory. (laughs) And what does that hope do for us? Paul shows us lastly in verse 5 that your hope will not disappoint you because God truly loves you. It's easy in the midst of our suffering to assume that God no longer loves us, that he no longer cares for us. I'm sure all of us can recall a sufficient number of our own hopes that have been dashed, if not demolished completely. So we may be left to ask the question will this hope also let me down? Will this hope also disappoint me? Will this hope that God has given me in this gospel, this hope of eternal life in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, will this hope also disappoint? Will it put me to shame along with all of those who also confess? Paul is coming back to this question. He's saying to us, now once you have grasped the gospel, he says, you will come to understand that this hope will never disappoint you because, you notice that word in verse 5, because, and you see he's saying to us, if you ask him the question, will this hope disappoint me? Will I be put to shame? No, it won't. Why? Because of the love of God poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Then don't simply allow that fear and anxiety to pour around in your mind. If you do, if you do not bring to that sickness of mind the medicine of the gospel, then you may be plunged into a sense of great need and great despair. And so he's saying what he is so often saying in so many different ways in all of his letters. Oh, Christian believers in Rome, Christian believers in Rincon, think the gospel through. This hope will not disappoint us because of something, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has already been given to us. So, you see, this is all about assurance, isn't it? The Lord wants to give us assurance. The Apostle Paul is writing to give us assurance. If you are a Christian, God really means for you to have assurance that you are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are going to go to heaven when you die. You are going to be a part of Christ's future kingdom and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth with unbreakable joy, with no affliction, with no suffering. The truth of verse 5 is that God gives us assurance through the Holy Spirit by pouring His love into our hearts, into our lives. And Paul knows that there is more than one enemy to our assurance, and he teaches us here that the affliction is God's great proving ground for the genuineness of our faith. He graciously takes us through trials so that our faith will be seen as genuine, and we will have hope because we are not hypocrites. But notice, Paul simply says that the Holy Spirit has come into your life, has begun to pour the love of God experientially into your heart. Friend, do you know the love of God in your heart, that your hope can be in knowing that the glory of God will be revealed to you at the end of this life? Do you know the love of God? So rich, so pure, so meaningful, so much for you that He gave His Son to enter into this sinful world, to live the life that you could not live to perfection, to die the death that you deserve because of your sin, and to have your sins placed upon Him on the cross, and to have His righteousness given to you as a gift that you might stand before the Father and be declared not guilty, even though you know as you stand there that you are as guilty as guilty can be. It is only because of the love of God through the person, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that you could ever know that love of God being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit but it is by faith alone when our hope, when our trust, when all that we have is placed in Christ, that instantly the Holy Spirit enters into our lives and we are justified. We are declared righteous. That doesn't mean our lives are going to be perfect. Our lives are not going to be easy. We're not going to do it all right, but in the eyes of God, the righteousness of Christ is enough. And so we can set down all of our efforts to try and work, to try and earn, to try and build, to try and be something or someone before God, and instead we can simply look to Him and rely upon the fact that Christ is all for me and Christ is all I need. Have you looked to Christ by faith? he invites you, he welcomes you, he wants you in his presence, and by love will receive you and never turn you away. And under God's sovereign grace, we have the glorious biblical truth of Christ's righteousness imputed by grace through faith alone, and we have the merciful gift of suffering. We are the beneficiaries today of the fruit of the suffering of so many other believers, and we are living to experience the fruit of our own suffering for God's glory. And God's design in all of it is that we not lose heart, but instead we trust Him. We're not going to always understand. We won't. So often we won't understand at all. We won't always respond well. We won't always find our way to rejoicing as we ought. But we can remember, if nothing else, that God is at work and He will not let you go. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. You may be sinking dear brother, dear sister, but the Lord is riding out the storm for you. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but the Lord is is always with you and for you and will be there in your greatest need no matter what, and He loves you, and He is pouring His love into your heart, and it will all break open with mercy on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace, because behind That frowning providence in your life right here, right now, in your suffering, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We may not see it in our lifetime, but we will see it. The whole Bible is written, and the experience of all of his people throughout history exists to convince us that his smiling face is there and that we can and that we should rejoice in our suffering. The fruits are worth all that may come in this life, because one day we get to stand before our God where there is no suffering. It's here for a little while now, but one day it all goes away, and we are perfected together with Christ. Amen.